Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Julin. Um, I am the associate pastor at Tap Marple. Um, I met some of you, some of you maybe have not, um, we've not met before, but hey, so great to be worshiping you, uh, worshiping with you this morning at Tap Richmond. And here we are on the first Sunday of a new decade. How, oh, nice. You can go ahead and clap for that. 2020, it's, it's kind of weird. I feel like it's a little weird. We are uh, Tapestry Church. We are kicking off the 20s. Can I say that? Saying in the 20s is like, think, I, I think of 1920 instead of like 2020. But like, you know, we say 1990s, the 90s, the 80s. But we are kicking off the 20s um, with the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. As many of you know, Luke, uh, the book of Luke is one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. Uh, Luke is a two-part volume, uh, two-part work, Luke Acts, by, this, uh, by one author called Luke. He is best known as Paul's traveling companion. He was with Paul in many of his missionary journeys. He was actually with Paul when Paul was in prison in Ephesus and in Rome. We also, interestingly, is the only Gentile author of the New Testament. Though a Gentile himself, he wrote as a historian, and he himself inhabited both the world of Judaism and Hellenism, so Greco-Roman world. Like I said, Luke wrote a two-volume um, two work, Luke, the book of Luke, and the book of Acts. The book of Luke focuses on the work of Jesus. The book of Acts focuses on the work of the church. So in Luke's two-volume work, you can see that in his eyes, the work of Jesus and the work of the church is one and the same. The gospel of Luke is actually the largest portion. Actually, Luke Acts, the corpus, is actually the largest portion we have of the New Testament. If some of you may be familiar with your Bibles, you may think, hey, isn't Paul's letters more? Um, the Pauline letters uh, comprise of 24% of the New Testament, but Luke Acts actually comprise tw of 28% of the New Testament. So Luke Acts is actually the, the largest chunk we have of the New Testament. In a summary statement, uh, Tom Wright and Michael Bird wrote this about the Gospel of Luke. If you can see it up. Let me <coughs> Excuse me. Luke explains how God's purpose and plan for salvation works itself from Israel through Jesus into the church and out into the world. From Israel, through Jesus, into the church, and out into the world. Last week, you we talked about Simeon and Anna. We, that was a lot of, Al reminded us about all the different uh, purification rites, the eight-day-old circumcision, so many things. It's coming, our story comes out from Israel. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually opens his story with an old couple, advanced in age, unable to conceive. So for any Jewish reader, if you pick up the Gospel of Luke, immediately your mind goes back to the same story of Israel, the same story of the father of many nations, the father of Israel. An old couple, advanced in age, unable to conceive. We think about Abraham and Sarah. Luke opens his Gospel with Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
by starting his story there, Liu is implying that God is about to do something that significant, as significant as when he called Abraham and Sarah. So in the, before we jump into our passage, which we heard from the kids' sermon this morning, let me take a big overview on Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. Our story in Luke 1 and 2 has actually a backbone to it. There is the birth of John the Baptist foretold, the birth of Jesus foretold. So one parallel, let me do this. And then the birth, the actual birth of John the Baptist, and then the actual birth of Jesus. If you see it in my next slide. So the backbone of Luke 1 and 2 is kind of laid out that way. And Luke 1 and 2, the two chapters, are known, or it's one section called the infancy narrative. So we've heard, let me just give you a quick overview. Like I said, the two backbone, we have two kind of announcements or foretelling. So two announcements and then two actual births. So uh, the birth of John, actually, um, do you mind going to the next slide? I'm going to break it down a little bit. So in the first announcement is the announcement of John the Baptist. So we have the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So if I may, Luke 1 and 2 is kind of like this whole stage, the whole chapter 1 and 2, the infancy narrative. And in, on this stage, there are multiple spotlights. So the first spotlight uh, turns on, shines on Zechariah and Elizabeth. So this is the first story. And then the spotlight dims. And then the spotlight turns on again at Mary. So we have the announcement of uh, Jesus. So we see Gabriel visiting Mary and letting her know this announcement. And then the spotlight is still on Mary. Mary visits Elizabeth. And then Mary um, uh, uh, exclaims in this song. And we know this song as the Magnificat. Um, so this is both comprises of the announcement. Then the spotlight dims. Sorry, my throat is a bit scratchy. So the spotlight dims, and then the spotlight shines again. And now back to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth actually gives birth. And then if you know this story, Zechariah, who was mute, he was able to say that the son would be named John. And then Zechariah bursts in a song. And then the spotlight dims. And then last week, here you were. Oh, sorry, not yet. The shepherds. The spotlight was on the shepherds. Shepherd visit uh, baby Jesus, dims. And then we have the spotlight on Simeon and Anna, which you guys were on last week, um, eight-year-old Jesus being presented at the temple, and then Simeon and Anna meets Jesus, spotlight dims. Here we are today, our passage is on a spotlight when Jesus is a teenager. A lot of you may know this story. Uh, His parents uh, lost or left him behind, and like we heard earlier in the kids' sermon, and Jesus was found in the temple. And here, then the spotlight dims. And that's kind of whole, the whole of Luke chapter 1 and 2. Of course, if you're not very comfortable with a small spotlight on Jesus, eventually the entire gospel will kind of wipe all the other, not, will set a, a stage for Jesus alone. And that actually begins in chapter 3. The parallel, like I said, two announcements to birth, the, the parallel actually continues in chapter, Luke chapter 3. We have the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. 
So in chapter 3, we see John's ministry where he was baptizing people, um, calling them to repentance. And here we find Jesus being baptized. And here on out, bam, the spotlight is on Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is also why only from Luke chapter 3, if you, if you're, if you're, um, if your Bible is open, 321 is where you find the genealogy. So in Luke chapter 3 onwards is when all the stages cleared, Jesus started with his genealogy and Luke takes on to see his life, who he is, what his mission is, what his actions were. So that's how Luke kind of starts his story. That's why if you um, look at the other Gospels, um, Mark or Matthew or John, um, a lot of them start at the, the baptism. Sorry, my voice is cracking. But Luke starts with the infancy narrative. We have two announcements and two births. So our passage today, um, like I said, 241 to 52 actually concludes the infancy narrative. As to chapter 1 and 2, it concludes that. It's a section like we heard of Jesus in the threshold of young adult life. So let's read this passage again. We've heard it, but let's read it together. 241. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you go back to that slide? I actually forgot about this slide. So... Yeah, that's basically um, two birth, two announcements, two births, and then the ministry. And that's where I circle where we find our story. The boy Jesus at the temple. Okay, let's dive into the passage. 241. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old... They went up to the festival according to the custom. Hey, do we have any 12-year-olds among us today? Raise your hand. Oh, there we have a few 12-year-olds. Jesus was exactly 12 year old. 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it, thinking he was in their company they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to look for him. So here we have a picture of a faithful Jewish family. So Jewish parents instructing their child in their faith and on this very holy day. And here we have Passover. Um, it, um, Luke tells us that this was the festival of Passover. It was one of the annual trips that um, uh, 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 Jewish pilgrims who at that time were dispersed out of Jerusalem. They were in the diaspora. So they would take this trip to Jerusalem for this celebration. And Passover was an eight-day celebration, so it's a long celebration. And um, the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem would take about a three-days walk a three-day journey just to get to Jerusalem. Men were definitely required to attend the Passover, but women were not. So the fact that um, Mary is going to the Passover, it says um, Jesus' parents in 41. The fact that Mary goes shows the depth of a, 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 a very pious Jewish family. And in, even in these four verses we just read, the piety and the, or, or the faithfulness or the obedience of 
uh, Mary and Joseph cannot be missed. Last week, you learned about all the different, um, the three different laws that they were fulfilling when they brought Jesus to the temple. And today, uh, even in 42, Luke acts adds a commentary according to the custom. So in case the readers didn't know, they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. So the importance in, in just this first two chapters in Luke, reminding that Mary and Joseph were very observant um, of the law. They were living out the laws of Moses was something we cannot miss. Next, he says, oh, sorry, sorry, um, I mean, next point uh, in 42, Jesus was 12 years old, to be precise. Lou actually puts that um, accurate or detail in there. Just as last week when, you, when we were talking about Anna, Lou actually puts that she was 84 years old. So he actually was very acute in his observation. Jesus is 12 years old, just like one of the boys back there. You know, at the, at, for, for Jewish boys, um, they turn adult, and what that means is that they're responsible for their action or they're responsible before God at the age of 13. You guys may be familiar with the um, modern-day bar mitzvah. It's that, it's that ceremony to kind of celebrate them being an adult. So at 13, they become an adult. So at the age of 12, where Jesus is, the instruction for these boys become more intensive. <clears throat> and they're, they're, they're busy preparing to, to, to enter the world of adulthood. So it was very um, important for Jesus to attend this Jerusalem festival a year or two before he actually becomes an adult. So we would realize like, what, what this whole relationship with God meant and what this status would involve. So like we read, verse and these four verses, the story is, Jesus is lost. Um, unlike today, when we think of traveling, we assume a kind of a nuclear family. We think father, mother, child. But in those days, these trips, especially to Jerusalem, these three-day trips were a big ordeal. People are probably traveling in a caravan of 20 or 30 people. We have aunts, we have uncles, we have cousins, we have second cousins, we have friends tagging along. There may be servants coming along if they had servants. So at this age of 12, Jesus might actually have been with either all the women and children, or he might be with the men and older, um, older boys, you know, talking about things of God. So it's easy to kind of not to lose him in a sense because you're traveling in such a big caravan. So thinking, where are we, in 44, um, they thought he was in their company. They traveled for a day. Now, in verse 46, let's continue. After three days, so they've traveled out of Jerusalem for one day, thinking he was with them, and then they had to travel back one day, and then another day spent in Jerusalem looking for him. 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at um, his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? 
but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Honestly, as a parent now, I feel like this is not my favorite passage to read in the Bible. I can totally see myself doing this, finding my daughter. Your father and I have been looking for you. What were you thinking? So Jesus is lost at the temple. And you know, actually, true story, when we were way, way younger, we actually left our youngest sister in the church. So my dad drove a separate car. My mom had another car. Me and my other sister followed either of our parents. Got home, and we assumed that Eunice, our little baby sister, who was two at that time, was with either one of the parents. We both, like, dashed back to the church and found her just among other church members just happily playing. So kind of similar, but not really. But it did happen in my family. So this story is kind of real to me. But in our passage, like I circled here, there's a subtle contrast that Luke wants to kind of bring our attention to. Mary, her words is, your father. And then Jesus answers, my father. So this is, in, 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 this, in this verse, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or why were you searching for me from verse 49? This verse is actually the first words coming out of Jesus' mouth himself. It's very significant because like I told you, in Luke 1 and 2, in the infancy narrative, we have such a miraculous announcement. We have a miraculous conception for Mary of how this son or this baby would come about. Then we move on the infancy narrative. We have the birth, the actual birth of Jesus. And then the shepherds came to visit him, acknowledging that he is some sort of royalty, some sort of king. And then Simeon and Anna, confirmation from the temple that Jesus is someone, not just an ordinary child. And here we find our passage at the last part of the infancy narrative, highlighting Jesus' words himself. So Jesus himself, though only 12 years old, says, did you know I had to be in my father's house? Um, there's two, st- thank you, the red, so I, I put it in red letters because, you know, some of our Bibles have red letter Bible that, that those are Jesus' words. Why were you searching for me? That's the first thing he, st- he says. This statement actually prepares us um, or points us to a, a, a next more significant statement. This same pattern occurs in Luke 24, 5, if you listen why do you look for the living among the dead? Followed by, he is not here, he is risen. So likewise, in this instance, the first statement, why were you searching for me here, points actually to a second more significant statement. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So this climax of Jesus' own words, of his own call, of his own personhood, um, comes with a very surprising twist. Jesus identifies the temple where he was, the temple with my father's house. It's very, very perplexing for Luke's readers. Who who does he think he is? Who is this person? When Jesus says, my father's house, he infers an intimate personal relationship as the son, capital S, as God's son. As both a son, capital, and lowercase s, Jesus grew. But as God's son at 12, 
we learned that his understanding was way beyond his years, and the Son of God grew to maturity. In 50, we just read, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So even Jesus' parents must come to understand who he is and what his mission is. Let's continue on this entire passage in 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is where our passage ends. So we have the whole event ordeal in the temple, and Liu adds to commentary. Jesus returns to normal life um, for a time. He submits. He was obedient to his parents. But Mary ponders the remarks of this special child. And so as we exit that scene or this scene, like Mary, we the readers now are left to also ponder the same thing. Who is Jesus? We see in this whole passage that the 12-year-old Jesus sees himself as the son, implying, that, implying by calling the temple my father's house. That Jesus' words is also the climax of the entire infancy narrative. You know, I bring, let me bring you back a little when I was talking about the big picture. We have the announcements, the birth, and in the ministry. In the ministry of Jesus, under that section... In chapter 3:23, Luke writes, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, and then the list goes on. And here is where we find the genealogy. He ends the genealogy with the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke makes it clear that Jesus is the Son of God. And after all this, after all the infant narrative, after so many surprising events that have taken place, and then climaxing at Jesus himself, point, saying who he is about himself, Luke introduces this Jesus is, genealogy, the Son of God. Even actually in the ministry of John the Baptist, right before that, John baptizes Jesus, and when Jesus comes out after being baptized, heaven's open. You guys are familiar with the story. What does the voice in heaven say? You are my son. So we have so many things that Luke kind of orchestrates. Events, surprising events. Then we have Jesus' own words as a 12-year-old boy saying, my father's house. And then we come in with the baptism story, the spotlights on John the Baptist, baptizing people, baptizing Jesus. And at Jesus' baptism, heaven opens. God himself confirms that this is my son. And then Luke 3, um, Luke gives the genealogy. And if, you're, if you've missed it, he's trying to make it clear, this is the son of God. And then... We'll continue on for the rest of the spring uh, 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 season, more of Luke. And we get to see what Luke's going to write and focus. And the spotlight will be on Jesus and Jesus alone. So here we have this passage, the finding of Jesus in the temple. It's actually the only one in Luke that breaks the silence of his teenage years. Because that's not in Mark, it's not Matthew, it's not in John. Only in Luke. So why? 
why, why, why this boyhood, um, this time of his life, why is that so important? Why this event, Luke? You know, I think in Luke's setup of his uh, infancy narrative, chapter 1 and 2, we are called to consider who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Of course, you and I, we don't relate to Jesus as a 12-year-old um, kid. Can I say kid? A uh, 12-year-old teenager. We relate to Jesus as God because we know that not only the ending of the book of Luke, we know the ending of the Bible, to say. But the point of our passage this morning is that Jesus has a unique relationship to the Father. And here it is for us. And this relationship takes priority over all other relationships, even when it requires painful obligations. This relationship in our passage, Jesus' relationship with the Father, takes priority over all other relationships. As Luke continues, we, we, we see that his parents were not the only one trying to come to grabs or trying to comprehend who Jesus is. In the rest of the book of Luke, the disciples were also slow to understand who he is, what he's about, and that realizing that following God takes priority over all other relationships, over everything else. In Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself take up the cross, and daily follow me. So I want to ask you this morning, who is Jesus? And, you know, this is not a Sunday school answer. Son of God or God. You know, in certain seasons of our lives, we relate to God so differently. We, we sang that he's our rock, he's our strength. Um, when I was in my season of singleness, he is the lover of my soul. You know, in high school, the Hillsong song, Jesus, you're my best friend, I related to him as a best friend. And then as you grow up, who is Jesus? Every season, he will reveal himself more and more and more. And when I ask you this question this morning, who is Jesus? At the cusp of a new decade, I'm not asking for a Sunday school answer. I'm not asking you to fill in the blank. Who is Jesus? Last but not least, like his parents from our passage, we may experience some perplexity and some pain. Perplexity. Sometimes um, in our passage earlier, even when they, the parents, did not understand what he was saying, Jesus went down with them to Jerusalem, I'm sorry, to Nazareth and was obedient to them. You see, even at that point, even when the parents didn't fully grasp, didn't truly fully understand who Jesus was entirely, Jesus went to, uh, with them to Nazareth and was obedient to them, an expression of his grace. Even when we don't fully understand who he is, God will give us the strength. God will give us the grace we need to come to know, come to grasp who he is. As I invite the band out, let this thought of who is Jesus linger in your mind. You know, you may be like his parents leaving an encounter with Jesus with perplexity and maybe with pain. There is a cause of following Jesus. Remember that God will give you the grace you need to face, to, to grapple, to wrestle, to come to grips with who he is. Don't lose the wonder, the perplexity and pain. Our relationship with God will take priority over every other relationship 
over everything else. So today, I want to challenge you. Who is Jesus? And what does that mean? And, and as, we, as we're called to be his followers, where does this leave us as followers? There might be perplexity. There might be pain. I want to challenge us today. How can we make Jesus the top priority of everything going on in our lives? What do we need to rearrange or reprioritize so that our relationship with God is the only, only thing that matters? What old habits need to die? What new habits we need to cultivate so that He, God alone, takes priority over everything else? Who is Jesus? Would you join me in a word of prayer? (coughs) Jesus, you are the Son of God. And even that statement sometimes um, is perplexing. We, We don't know what it means. We say that so often. But Lord, this year as we enter 2020, we want to experience new sides, new things about you, Lord. Lord, you truly are worthy of every breath. You are the King, the Son of God. And Lord, as we enter a new season of our life, a new year, Lord, we want to say you are God. You are the topmost priority. You are everything we need and everything we live for. Lord, we want to build our life on who you say you are, not who we want you to be. Lord, help this passage to linger, to provoke our thoughts. Lord, that we will embrace both perplexity and pain, if there are any, as we come to comprehend come to grapple and and, and come to uh, grip who is Jesus. In your sweet name we pray.